Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Olive Podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's Deputy Editor and Podcast Host, and each episode I'll be catching up with chefs, cookery writers and characters from the food scene in Britain and beyond. Join us each week to expand your food knowledge as our guests share 10 things we need to know about the specialist subject. And do listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where they also reveal their top cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. This week's podcast was recorded on location in a coffee shop in Nashville. I caught up with Chris Chamberlain, a Nashville local and food and drink expert, to find out all about the city and what it has to offer. So my name's Chris Chamberlain. I'm a Nashville native, lived here my whole life, which makes me kind of a unicorn in town right now since we've got so many people moving into the city. But um, I'm, I'm glad to have him here. Um, I, I really don't like it when people say Nashville's full, go home. Yeah, because that's kind of like showing up late to a party and pulling the velvet rope behind you, you know, so I think, you know, we need to be opening and welcoming the people coming here and it's only made the community so much better. And for myself as a food, drink and travel writer, um, all those are helped by having people coming into town from from other places because I learn more and their expectations raise the whole, you know, raise the river for everyone. So the boats all rise. Brilliant. Cool. And um, if you had to describe the national food scene to someone who knew nothing about it, how would what would be the overarching way you'd describe it? It's definitely eclectic because of who's moved in. Okay. You know, um, like most places in America, it was a lot of fern bars 20 years ago. Um, but I think we've gotten some chefs that really want to emphasize the sense of place here. You know, we are in a breadbasket of produce and, and products. So farm to table was very strong here and it was very early here. Yeah. But at a certain point, it became so prevalent in, in, in our dining scene that chefs decided to expand on that concept and go, all right, farm to table should be the norm, but it doesn't all have to be the same shrimp and grits yeah. and you know fried hoe cakes. We can use local ingredients to create amazing Asian food or rustic Italian menus, Yeah. Uh, but you're still emphasizing the sense of place because you're, um, take City House, for example, Tandy yeah. Wilson, especially early on, um, he limited himself to only five imported ingredients, but he did a full rustic Italian menu. Oh, wow. But that meant that he would substitute grits for polenta or you know, catfish for whitefish in yeah. a traditional Northern Italian dish. Yeah. So that made it even more interesting than just going to a farm to table restaurant or going to a classic yeah. Italian restaurant. When you talk about farm to table, what what would be the the things that you would typically find farmed here or the, the sort of produce? What is it famous for the area? Oh, absolutely. I mean, seasonal menus, um, especially the restaurants that really commit themselves to using yeah. regional local produce whenever they can. You know, that means you're going to get a lot of you're going to get a lot of root vegetables yeah. <laughs> in February and March. And the chefs have to figure out something great to do with them. Yeah. Or we do a lot of preservation. There's many restaurants here that that will take the prime oh, okay. the prime produce of summer and pickle and ferment yeah. 
and dry and they'll find a way to stretch that season while still reminding you of what a little kiss of summer was yeah. when in, you're in the doldrums of December. It's just so trendy so. at the minute, isn't it? The whole fermenting and pickling thing. It is, but it is trendy way. in that it's historic here. I mean, that is, we wouldn't have country ham if, if people that lived in Appalachia didn't realize, well, there's no sense feeding this pig through the, through the winter because he's yeah. not going to gain any weight. He's just <laughs> going to cost me money to feed him, but we can't eat him all, all at once. So come Thanksgiving, you would slaughter your pig. You'd put it, you know, you put it in salt and then you'd hang it in your smokehouse and you'd smoke it and you'd preserve ah. it so that you'd have meat through the winter and into next year yeah. when your pigs were actually productive. Yeah. So, you know, the same thing with corn. The reason whiskey's around is if you've got extra excess corn at the end of the season, you can put it in the silo and hope that it doesn't rot. Yeah. Or you can convert it into something that's easy to store in barrels and that your neighbors will pay you money for. Yeah. And that's moonshine. Amazing. So they're both methods of preservation that, you know, are trendy now. Certainly whiskey mm -hmm. and pickling and ham and bacon. You know, they people are get excited about that and yeah. you know, overly excited about that, I'd say. Yeah. But it really is out of necessity. Yeah. And you mentioned, um, you know, the eclectic nature of the food scene. Is that because of, uh, you know, um, people from like other heritages, other cultures settling here as well? There's that on the demand side, without a doubt. I mean, we've certainly got a big influx of California. Yeah. Um, and I lived, I went to college for four years in California. Yeah. That's where I learned to use chopsticks and learned, you know, oh, I hadn't been eating Chinese food. Okay. <laughs> until I got You'd to California. You'd been eating the, um, the, <laughs> the, the American version of Chinese the, food. I mean, the, we've got the same in the UK the as well. With the sweet and sour sauce yeah, that exactly looks like transmission that, yeah. fluid. Yeah, that. No, I am. Um, but now they've come with those demands. Plus, the kitchens here have become so successful and renowned mm. that people want to come learn from the chefs here in Nashville. Yeah. And then they're going to spin off. They're not just going to replicate the kitchen they were in. They're going to take the techniques and the passions that they learned working for Sean Brock or, you know, working um, in the kitchen at Husk and, or at Catbird Seat. They're like, okay, now this is what we do on the weekend at home. Yeah. You know, we do Japanese bar barbecue in our backyard and it turns into Kisser over nice. in East Nashville. Yeah. Or, you know, I worked... I not I, but um, like Julio Hernandez you know, was was working in kitchens, but then he was making his own. He was grinding his own maize to make his own masa, and that turned into Maiz de la Vida, which wow. is his food truck and tortilla operation using Amazing. heirloom corn. You know that is a local kitchen stimulating someone from out of out of town, yeah. but offering them the opportunity and the publicity that we know who Julio is when he goes to open his new place. Yeah. Because we've seen what he did in someone else's kitchen. Is that I, I I saw a couple of food trucks as we were driving around this morning. Is is street food food trucks is that is that a thing here or is that or is it? It is, and it's a great stepping stone. I would say that ten years ago, when the food truck boom first started, yeah. there were a lot more places for them to park, <laughs> and that's that's quite a risk when you're depending on. All right, if I'm going to feed people, I need yeah. to go someplace where all the people are. And that is the worst place to find a parking spot now. So oh, we don't have many gathering points for food so trucks space other than for, yeah. a couple planned events. There's one right. that they do near the Capitol during the week. And yeah. You'll find them in some of the parks, but um, we don't have like a, you know, a food truck junction anywhere where you yeah. can go. But the trucks, you know, going back to Julio, my de la Vida, he parks in front of Chopper, which is a fantastic tiki bar. <laughs> So you can go order go your meal from him, <laughs> go inside, and, and Chopper's happy to have you. 
eating there. That's so, so cool. I love that. Yeah, so that that's kind of how our food trucks work yeah. here. But and, again, training ground for chefs that are looking yeah. for their own brick and mortar. And on the flip side of that, the fine dining scene here is is pretty huge. Yeah, we're not covered by Michelin. I mean, Atlanta just not, just not picked Michelin. up. Yeah, just picked um, up that. But what's the equivalent here? Well, I mean, we've got James Beard Award nominees yeah. and winners, but we do have Michelin starred chefs here. You know, they've yeah. come from Michelin kitchens, but a lot of them are chefs that made their living in Chicago or made their living somewhere right. else and decided to maybe not retire, but get out of the rat race and yeah. come to a, a more comfortable place to, to settle that's not quite as competitive of an environment. I mean, yeah. that's one thing I love about Nashville is the restaurants here don't believe that it's a zero-sum game. They don't get angry when another restaurant opens a block away. Um, it goes back to that rising tide raises all boats idea. Yeah. But if you are a restaurant, even if you're from out, from out of town and you're in that last week of friends and family and training before you open, yeah, you're liable to get a phone call from uh, Trey at the farmhouse or or uh, Carrie Bringle at Pegleg Porker. They'll call and say, hey, how many people are you training today? Okay, we're going to deliver 150 tacos or we're going to bring you 20 pounds of, of pulled pork and buns. Because they want to support each That's other. That's so supportive, isn't it? I love that. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it, I love that about this community. Yeah. The, the chefs are very close. So. And do you think that the, the scene has changed in the past 10 years? Is there more kind of... It has because there's a lot more out-of-town chefs. We had, right. you know, there 10 years ago, all the chefs that were making making waves, you know, Tyler Brown and Trey Chiaccia and and Tandy Wilson and Sean Brock, Yeah. Um, they all had connections to Nashville and you'd probably catch them at the same bar at two o'clock after they closed and yeah. having one last beer or going to Robert's for a fried bologna sandwich. Um, but now they've all got kids, yeah. you know, and they've grown up. <laughs> so they run kitchens of younger people now. Yeah. And the younger people here, I don't get the feeling that they're quite as enmeshed with each other as they were because they've usually come here from somewhere else. Yeah. They didn't go to rival high schools, you know, like the, like the chefs that I'm talking about are, but, uh, you know, they're, it's still a community. You That's know, and, great. And That's, they've taken yeah. on the attitudes of their elders, yeah. which I like. Okay, I'm going to ask you about some, well, some famous Nashville foods that someone like me, who's not really deep into it, sure. might have heard of. So Nashville hot chicken, have to mention it. Absolutely. Um, uh, where did it come from? <laughs> the... The founders and still champions are Prince's Hot Chicken Shack. Okay. <laughs> and I'm sure you'll hear the story while you're here, but yeah. um, it goes back to Thornton Prince in the 1930s, who was a very handsome man. Um, married six women. We don't know any of their names at this point, but in between one of those marriages, he was cheating on his girlfriend with another girlfriend, yeah. and she didn't like it. So she decided to punish him by piling cayenne pepper, red pepper all over his chicken until it was infernal. <laughs> And it was black and he loved it and asked her to cook it again. And then he invited his friends over to try it. And they told him they should open, that he should open a restaurant and serve it. it. And so uh, Prince's barbecue shack came out of that, but hot yeah. chicken was the, the main dish. And so since the thirties and forties, they have really been in charge of the hot chicken industry yeah. here in Nashville. But you know, it's a spicy food. It's something that, uh, you know, all the all the hottest foods come from the hottest places, right? Yeah. Thai food and Latin American yeah, food. So, true. so here you are on a 98 degree day in Nashville. Yeah. Hot chicken will cool you down a little yeah. bit. But 
Um, and you mentioned barbecue. Is that still big? It is. It is. Um, we don't have a, I wouldn't say we have a unique Nashville style okay. of barbecue, which, you know, when you think of Memphis, I can tell you what Memphis is. It's yeah. It's going to be things like barbecued spaghetti and uh, dry rub ribs. Barbecued spaghetti. Well, when you think about it, what's spaghetti sauce? It's, it's tomato sauce and meat, right? Yeah. What's barbecue? It's tomato sauce and meat. <laughs> so they use pulled pork and sauce and pour it over pasta and okay, it's, yeah. it's delicious. Good. Yeah. No, if you ever get a chance to try it, don't knock it. Um, but in, you know, Kansas City and St. Louis have their style of ribs. Okay, but and Nashville's not claimed a style. Well, I, I think that's because we've got four interstate or three interstates that cross within a mile of each other downtown. Yeah. And they reach to barbecue regions. Like yeah. I-40 will take you to Western and Eastern North Carolina for barbecue, yeah. which are two different styles. And going to the West, it'll take you to Memphis. And I-24 will take you up to St. Louis. And I-65 will take you down to Alabama where they have uh, Alabama white sauce, which they serve on barbecued chicken. Yeah. So all those, all those influences cross here in Nashville. Yeah. And I would say that most of the barbecue places, they've got one dish they do best. You know, when people ask me my favorite barbecue, okay, I don't give them that answer. You, I tell them where my favorite place is. Ribs or go here for the chicken. Absolutely. Or, yeah. And, you know, that's not just being ecumenical. That's, you yeah. know, realizing that different people have different passions. Yeah. Let, can we talk a bit about breakfast? Because we had breakfast this morning at... Um, here at Kitchen... Kitchen Notes. Kitchen Notes. Um, so I noticed it was there were some quite hefty items on there. Um, the biscuits, the grit, the grit, you said before, grits, the um, waffles some sausage and gravy with the biscuits. Yeah. yeah. So are these all kind of traditional Southern? It is. I mean, it goes back to getting ready to work a hard day in the fields. Yeah. And a lot of times that, that big breakfast meal might have been served at midday. Yeah. You know, we... Um, most people think of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. Um, in the South, a lot of us think of breakfast, lunch, and supper. Oh, okay. And dinner might be a small meal after you're done working, and supper might be your last meal of the day. Yeah. Um, breakfast is to get you ready to go out and work in the hot fields or go out and, you know, go hunting in a cold forest somewhere. And lunch may be to try and charge you up for the rest of the day, or it may be something you took in a, in a steel pan, yeah. you know, with you out to the fields. So lunch is not as big a deal as breakfast is because you may not get, you might not get home for lunch. Yeah. So <laughs> supper is when we'll really feed you. Yeah. So. Cool. Um, and I want to talk a bit about drinking because I think I get the impression that Nashville is a town that embraces drinking. Um, obviously Tennessee whiskey is huge. I, I think we're going to visit a distillery on this, on this tour, but are there quite a few different distilleries? Is that a thing? The sort of like my, there are smaller distilleries rather uh, than the big guys until really in the last decade, um, you know, Tennessee was early to prohibition and late to leave. Yeah. <laughs> so after prohibition, the law was that you could only distill in Tennessee in three counties. Yeah. And for half a century, those, those three counties had two distilleries, George Dickel and Jack Daniels who made oh, Tennessee okay. whiskey. Yeah. And they changed that law in the legislature. I want to say in the late, 2000 aughts um, to allow it on a county by county approval. And mm. since then, yeah, we've got an entire Tennessee whiskey trail of 40 different distilleries around, wow. the, around the state and kind of trading on that same idea of like the, you know, the bourbon trail in, in Kentucky where there's, you know, there's a tourism aspect associated with it too. But again, historic as aspect yeah. before prohibition um, in middle Tennessee, there was more than a hundred 
registered distilleries because every farm had to have their own DSP number, their distilling permit. Yeah. Because they wanted to be able to distill their own grain for sale and for use. Yeah. So after Prohibition, it just didn't make sense to come back with those tiny little distilleries that yeah. were maybe just for the neighborhood. But now we're getting into micro distilleries and smaller distilleries that are growing into larger ones or what we call non-distilling producers who are maybe buying their their initial stocks from a large distiller um, in Indiana or Kentucky, but then they're doing their own blend. They're yeah. doing their own aging. So there's a, there's a lot that happens after the chemical reaction of turning, turning uh, sugar into sugar and yeast into alcohol. And has there been any move away? And like, for example, um, in the UK, gin is massive mm. and loads of gin distilleries have popped up. Um, it, has anything happened over here? Like with other spirits? Well, the difference between, like a gin and a whiskey, either either a Scottish whiskey or an American whiskey, is nobody wants to drink your two-year-old whiskey. <laughs> so if you want to go into business as a new distillery, you basically have to go to a bank and say, hey, I'd like to borrow $20 million to build a chemical engineering plant, and we'll know in about four or five years if I'm any good at it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so instead, you know, the first things off the still are going to be clear yeah. spirits. They're going to be vodka, and you can add some... You can add some uh, herbs and spices to mm. it and, and have a really nice gin. So in a lot of cases, that is the primary product for the first couple of years of a new distillery. So yeah. that's where we're seeing our gin renaissance. A couple places have really extended that and said, all right, we make a great gin or we yeah. make a really good vodka. We're going to keep that as part of our main portfolio. But there's just such a romance in brown whiskey. Yeah. And we do have the perfect climate for it. We've got the limestone shelf where the same as Kentucky where the water is yeah. is it's drained through limestone and it takes the iron out of the water so it makes a nice soft whiskey and we've got the hot summers and the cold winters which encourages kind of the tidal flow of the spirit in and out of the barrel where it can get you know, those different elements of vanilla and caramel out of the barrel Beautiful. you know where it where it and I'm not saying this disparagingly at all where it might take 15 minutes or 15 years for a scotch whiskey to reach maturity that's because it just doesn't have the climate that yeah. is treating it so harshly yeah. as ours does. It's just more pressure. Here, I love so. this so much romance around it as well. And, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure you ride around Ireland and Scotland. You'll yeah, feel that same exactly. sense of romance. Yeah, exactly. so. And what about, what about beer? Is, is that, a, I mean, are there breweries here, like independent breweries? There are. We've got, uh, that's been a big growth. Yeah. Um, I think we've got about 30. So like the craft, the county. what we would call craft beer rather than craft just beer. Lager. I mean, there's a few of them that have got systems that are 30 to 50 barrels, which is a pretty large system. Yeah. But a lot of them that are more in the seven to 15 barrel size, yeah. which is more than you can just serve out of your own tap room. You still have distribution on that. You're still yeah. going to go into cans or bottles and kegs for, for distribution. But kind of going back to that barbecue thing, yeah. we've had a couple breakout beers in Nashville that have become regionally prop popular, okay. like, uh, um, like home style from, uh, from I'm blanking on it. Home style IPA from bearded, bearded Irish. Sorry about that. Oh, cool. Um, That's but right. you know, that is a, that is a full regional beer that people love in a lot of places. But yeah. in most cases, everybody's brewing to their own style and yeah. making what they are passionate about. So, you know, I, like barbecue. I've got a place I go to for lagers. I've got a place I go to for IPAs. Yeah. And uh, But everybody is very supportive of each other, too. A lot of collaboration between yeah. the breweries. 
Um, but it's a, it's a small, tight industry here, but we've had the craft beer conference, the national craft beer conference okay. has been here twice in the last six years. Yeah. So clearly, you know, there's a hub of, of brewing yeah. going on here, but we tend to keep it closer to home. Yeah, nice. And does Nashville have any, um, do you ever have like food festivals or, you know, beer festivals, I guess, whiskey festivals, that kind of thing where people come down for In, the... Any and all of those. So, oh. um, <laughs> um, a lot of the... A lot of the food festivals are kind of tasting events, which are usually wrapped around a nonprofit to raise money. Okay. So there aren't as many that are really shining a spotlight on on the Nashville cooking community writ large. Yeah. It's just another way for them to give back. Yeah. Um, but we have a lot of whiskey festivals that come through town. Some that are that are created and promoted locally. Some of them that are yeah. touring and come through. Um, beer festivals are the same way. There's a company called Rhizome Productions that puts on excellent beer festivals in town from the East Nashville beer fest to the winter yeah. warmer. Um, they'll, they'll do concerts in the park and bring brewers in. And again, that goes back to relationships. Everybody wants to come to Nashville. So yeah. it's not hard to call <laughs> up a brewer and say, Hey, would you like to come to Nashville for a weekend and bring a couple of kegs and, and pour in a pretty park somewhere? Yeah. So we usually have good, good, ones. good success putting yeah. those together. Um, I was going to ask you, cause you are kind of buried in the food and drink scene. Have you, have you seen any trends like sort of in the, in the last year or upcoming trends, things that you just think, oh, that's a new thing that's coming up. That's. And yeah, this is one that we're, I won't say coming out of, but from the beginning of the pandemic till the beginning of this year, almost every major restaurant expansion happened in a hotel. Oh, okay. And hotel dining is definitely a thing, but it's not, it's not as much about, you know, local independent restaurants as we had been used to for the year before restaurants in neighborhoods. But the reason behind that is if you're building a hotel and a pandemic yeah. strikes, you're going to keep building that hotel. You're yeah. not stopping. If you had the chance not to open an independent restaurant yeah. in 2020 or 2021, you put the brakes on that. So yeah. now we're seeing that pendulum swing back a little bit. Added fantastic hotel restaurants. I was like going to say you're actually you getting to. much better. Yeah. Yeah. Like Yolan that you were at and yeah. the, We've got Schombrock's The Continental and The Grand Hyatt and just yeah. innumerable good hotel restaurants. But now they're getting back into the neighborhoods and they're expanding into the into the neighborhoods that are growing because adding an independent restaurant to a burgeoning neighborhood is like pouring gasoline on a fire to get people to want to move there yeah. and to get people to visit for the first time and discover the charm of a neighborhood they maybe have never been yeah. to before. So we're, we're seeing unexpected culinary pockets pop up all over town that okay. that me as a native would have never thought that you know the neighborhood we call the nations would have become the hotbed that it is now yeah, tell or me, that, tell me a few a few of the, the places that so there's there's the nations is yeah. it was primarily a residential neighborhood until one corridor of it started popping up restaurants and yeah. now just running down 51st avenue you'll find 15 great restaurants and bars and a craft yeah. butcher and two breweries and it's just uh it's it's turned into a great neighborhood to dine in and right. and, it, and it's opened it up to a lot of people that probably wouldn't have gone there before yeah. and now we're seeing growth going up on the east bank of the city and going north which was very um very commercial before you know there's there's three big restaurant projects going into a an abandoned piggly wiggly grocery store <laughs> <laughs> Which if you told me that the pig was going to be the hotbed of dining in Nashville, <laughs> I would have been surprised. But when I heard that the chefs behind Butcher and Pea and Rolf and Daughters and the bartenders behind yeah. Flamingo and um, 
we're going to be opening spots there, then, okay, I believe you. I'm, I'm ready to go to the pig. I love that. <laughs> um, finally, if someone listened to this were, had, a, had a trip planned to Nashville, what would be the kind of can't miss eating experiences or drinking experiences that you think that they should look for? So we have a concept in Nashville we call a meet and three. Okay. Which is usually a down-home restaurant where you go down a table, a line and a steam table with your tray, and you pick one meat, and that might be fried chicken or roast beef or baked ham or catfish, and then you get to pick your three vegetables to go with it. It's a plate lunch. And luckily here in Nashville, jello is a vegetable, macaroni and cheese is a vegetable, so we get a lot of good southern things. And so I would definitely make sure to either find a place that's a good meat and three yeah. or... Or, or a soul food joint. Soul food, And yeah. soul food, like Silver Sands, you know, the food is very similar. It's, you know, it's oxtails and hog maws. And when people talk about what's the difference between soul food and meat and three, I say it's more a matter of who's cooking it right. than what the food is. So, so soul food, more like a family restaurant? Well, I mean, it's, it's almost always black-owned restaurants. Okay. And so that's a chance to experience another part of Nashville's yeah. community that, doesn't really have a toehold downtown. Right. Slim and Huskies is the only black-owned restaurant in on Lower Broad right now. Okay. And we'll see more of that. But if you want to really, you know, go to Big Al's Deli, go to Silver Sands, um, go to Slim and Huskies cool. and experience that. So that'll get you through breakfast and lunch. Right. <laughs> um, for dinner, certainly try one of those hotel restaurants for a, an elevated dining experience. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're fantastic. But also look for the independent restaurant tours. You know, a chance to Look for somebody that really is promoting that they're cooking seasonally using local, you know, local, local produce, and you'll get a real taste of Nashville that way. Brilliant. Thank you so much for chatting to us today. Oh, it's, it's been my amazing. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Olive Podcast. For recipes and more information, head to olivemagazine.com. Do remember to listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where our guests reveal their best cooking cheats, hacks, and shortcuts. And don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.